Good morning. Great to see everybody. Happy Easter to everybody. Thank you all for coming this morning. So special to see everybody here. I want to begin this morning by sharing a silly car commercial I saw the other day. You'll, you'll understand here in a moment. There was a, a young couple and a baby that appeared to have arrived at some sort of vacation destination. They show up at this place, they walk in the door, and mom is holding the baby in her arms. They both look at the baby and it starts to have some of those uh, sounds that sounds like it's about to have a meltdown. And the mom looks at the dad and says, did you remember the pacifier? The dad's eyes grow wide, and he runs out the door, jumps into his car. Again, this is a car commercial. Jumps into the car, drives very fast, very probably illegally, and the further he drives, more people around him are sort of noticing and almost cheering him on. You could do this. You got this. And it's almost like there was a a police helicopter videotaping this thing, and it's on big screens in big cities, and people are cheering and saying, you could do it. He runs home, grabs the pacifier, runs back, makes it to the vacation destination, and gives the baby the pacifier just on the brink of chaos. And the baby spits out the pacifier. And the mom says she likes the green one, not the blue one. I bring that up, not having any sort of ability to connect with that. I'm not a parent. But I bring that up because I think there's something in all of us that we can connect with that, whether we're a parent or we're not. And that connection point is that it's some of the silliest things in life that that just slip our minds. We have so many things that we process through on a day-to-day basis that some of the most silly, outrageous things that we do on a daily basis, it just it, we forget it. We forget them from the wrong colored pacifier to losing your keys, locking your keys into your car. I'm hoping that happened to none of you this morning. To just for, for getting silly things, but also not so silly things. I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many spouses or couples forgot Valentine's Day this year? Don't show your hands, please. How many of you have forgotten anniversaries? We'll keep going down that route. Birthdays. Special occasions. Oh my gosh, that's happening today? I didn't plan for that. I forgot. We're very forgetful people. And I'm at the front of the list. Ask my wife. I'm a very forgetful person. We have apps on our phones, reminder lists, check marks. There may be some sticky note people out there that every corner, every surface area of your home is covered with sticky notes to help you to remember the things you need to get done. We have so many tools around us because we are all so forgetful, aren't we? We're very forgetful aren't we? I bring this up because I would imagine that a majority of us are here this morning. Thank you for coming this morning. A majority of us are here this morning because there is some sort of value we put into being here to celebrate Easter. Some of us, some of you may be forced to be here by your parents or by whatever else. We're still glad you're here too. But there's some sort of value we attribute to celebrating Easter right here in a church context. 
We all attribute that. We all have some sort of value we put onto the Easter story. But if we, but if we forget some of the most simple things in our lives, how much more should we wonder, do I have the whole story? Have I, do I understand the Easter story as much as I should? Do I have all the details? Do I understand what I'm supposed to understand? Or am I taking it as seriously as I should? These are very important questions, and I'm glad you're asking them, or at least I'm forcing you to ask them. And so what I want us to do this morning is I want us to go back, back to the Easter story, go through it, and, and, and just examine it, look at it. And as you're, we're going through this story, take your own time and look and say, do, am I taking this seriously enough? Do I understand these details as much as I should? Am I taking God's resurrection as seriously as I should? With all of that being said, please open your Bibles to the book of John. Open up your copy of the scriptures to the book of John. We are going to be in John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. As you're flipping in your Bibles, I would like to pray for us. Let us enter a time of prayer. Gracious Father, Lord, we come to you today celebrating. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of music and the way by which music pulls our hearts closer to you, the way that we can use music as a gift from you to give you the praise and glory that you so rightfully deserve, yet never enough. Lord, I thank you for everybody that is here this morning or everybody that is listening online. I pray that you would be with each of our hearts. You know the places we come from, you know what we've gone through. You know the burdens and stresses and praises in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would work in each and every one of us. Reveal yourself to each and every one of us. Challenge us. Convict us where we need convicting. Encourage us where we need encouraging. Lord, may that happen by your Spirit's power, not by anything I could artificially manufacture. Be with me, Lord. I pray that you would use the words that I share to, to bring honor and glory to your name. I pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. This passage begins in a, a time period that has always made my, my mind spin. That has always been such an interesting place to be in the story of the Bible or in the story of history. It was those lonely three days, that time in between, if you will. It's always fascinated me just what's happened here. Because when we, we talk about the story, we recognize Easter, we celebrate God's resurrection. We also have to recognize the fact that three days before Easter Sunday, God died. How does that even happen? The giver of life died. With that death, more than likely, died expectations, hopes, dreams from his followers. We think of those 11 disciples and the, the numerous other followers of Jesus who at some point jumped into the message, jumped into the ministry, hearing the, men, the messages of Jesus, hearing the fact that he was claiming to not just be a man but God. 
And he would go around and he would teach the peoples in such a captivating way. He would give them this, these, these, these commandments and these instructions that were fraught with controversy but hope. His battles with the religious leaders of the time. His miracles. How can somebody who rose a person, a friend from the dead, die? And what does that do to an individual who has given their everything to this God? Given their everything to this person, said, you alone are my hope. You alone are what I'm holding on to. I'm flying in the face of everything my culture holds dear because I'm, I'm, I'm grasping on to you. You are my life. Peter said, you alone are the holder of eternal life. Where else can we go? And that holder of eternal life, that miracle worker, that friend, died. How would you react? In the case of the disciples, they scattered. Like a, sheep, like a flock of sheep without a shepherd, they scattered. Right? And this passage introduces us to an individual, a character, Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene would have been one of the, the women followers of the Lord Jesus. There's a lot of different ideas of who exactly she was. The scriptures are not very clear as to who she was. But what we know is that she was among a group of women that helped to fund Jesus' ministry. It's one of the little-known facts is Jesus' ministry was funded by a group of women. Mary Magdalene is regarded as one of them. And we get to this Sunday morning, this cold, dark, depressing, hopeless Sunday morning, where Mary, in, this, in John's gospel, he refers specifically to Mary, but in all the other gospels, we know there was a group of women that went. But here, John's emphasis and focus is on Mary Magdalene. She goes to the tomb with spices and oils, aromatic herbs, to fulfill a custom of their peoples, where you would go and you would anoint a dead body with special spices and herbs and as, as a means of preservation of the body. It was the same sort of value that we may put to putting flowers on a tombstone of our lost loved ones, of going to a cemetery and recognizing the dead, paying honor to them, very similar sort of emotional connection and attachment. Mary goes with another a group of women, and she makes it to this place, the place of the tomb. She saw it a few days earlier. You get the imagery of the big stone covering up the doorway of the tomb. The dead in that time were not buried in the ground, but were buried in a carved-out cave. There might have been sections carved out of a wall where a dead body would lay in, or maybe there would be some sort of bed that made of stone on the ground that you would lay the body onto. She went to go and give honor to her Lord. She had an expectation of what was happening that day. And then when she gets to the tomb, she finds an interesting situation. 
The text isn't exactly clear of what was going on in her mind when this happened, but she must, I imagine, going over a hill or turning a corner and, and going to this place and finding a stone, a massive stone, moved in an open door that was previously shut. How did this happen? The text tells us that she did not stay, seem to stay long. She, she looked and she noticed what was happening, and the very first instinct she had was to turn the other way and to run. Run to people she was familiar with. In this case, it was Peter and the other disciple. It says the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that other disciple being John. If you're ever in a Christian circle and you wish to know if your friend named John knows his Bible enough, ask him who the disciple was that Jesus loved. And if he knows his Bible enough, he will say, me. She goes to these two friends, people she has lived with, has, has traveled with for years. She says, they have, they have taken the Lord and we know not where he has gone. They've taken him. We don't know where he is. We hear this and we're listening to this story and we don't know exactly what she's going for, but there was a very real fear in her mind at that point once the grave was open. And that fear was grave robbers. Grave robbers has a very ancient sort of feeling. I kind of get an Indiana Jones kind of thought in my head. But grave robbing, if I, I don't know how much it happens nowadays. I didn't do the research. It wasn't worth my time. But back in the day, grave robbing was an extreme concern for ancient peoples. Many times when they would bury their dead, they would bury some sort of treasure or valuables with them. For different cultures and religions, it would carry them into the afterlife or whatever else. But for the Jews, it was still a, a grave concern because that was still an emotional connection with that person. And desecration of a dead body was a horrible thing. It was an extreme offense to the Jewish peoples. I think in many ways it might be an offense to us today. And so there was a fear there of them taking the body, taking whatever, what, whatever valuables. It doesn't say there was valuables buried with Jesus, but taking that body away. You don't know where it is. There's no place, no way for you to honor this person. And so that would have been the fear on their minds. So she goes to Peter and the other disciple, the disciple John, lets them know that they, they have taken the Lord and, she, and you don't know where he is. And the two get up and run as quickly as possible, sprinting as quickly as possible to make it to the tomb to say, what is going on? This isn't what we expected. It's interesting when you see a bit of the humanity of the writers peek through in the scriptures. Apparently, John and Peter had arguments of who was faster, and John made sure everybody would know for the next 2,000 years that he made it there first. It says that they both ran, yet the other disciple outran, John, outran Peter, and John makes it to the edge of the tomb. He, he gets to the spot. He, he looks in, but he doesn't go in. He, he takes, he's, he's, he's not one that would jump into a situation like that, but he stops and he looks. He notices a peculiar fact. When you would bury your dead 2,000 years ago in this part of the world, you would embalm them with some sort of cloth wrapping. Again, it was a part of the honor system of a way to honor the dead. And so John looks into the tomb and he sees the, the body wrappings, the linen wraps, the cloth. 
has been folded up and is laying at the place where Jesus' body was. Why would a grave robber do that? It was kind of punishable by death to do such a thing. So why would they take that extra time, uncoil the dead body, and, and, and fold it up all nice and neat? It's, it's, a, it's, it's a confusing part of the story. But he chooses not to go in. And, and Peter, he runs and he jumps right in. As we've talked about perhaps several different times, Peter is not known for stopping and thinking before he acts. He jumps right into the tomb. And he looks and he notices the same thing. The cloth is folded and put over on the side. And also mentions the face cloth. Apparently there was a a part of the wrapping process that would involve some sort of cloth that would cover the face of the deceased. That too was off, was folded up, and was placed neatly. Very confusing. Why is this happening? And as we're looking at this, I want us to notice what each of the individuals did. What was their reaction to what was happening? First, we look at Peter. Peter seems to go in, go into the tomb, notice the evidence around him. But there's never any indication of where he, where his mind goes to, what conclusion he makes. He goes in, connects the dots, but he doesn't, or he doesn't seem, sorry, he doesn't seem to connect the dots. He doesn't seem to understand what's happening here. And I think there's a part of us who's looking into this story. Hindsight is truly 2020 when we go, when we can look at back at the story and we can look at Peter and we can go, what are you doing? It's so obvious. Come on, man. I get you're tired and your whole world has been shaken. You can see it right in front of you. We get prideful in that way, don't we? Peter enters without thinking, sees the evidence, doesn't seem to connect the dots. The other disciple, John, seems to have a bit more of an interesting place. And it's, 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 it's confused my mind as to exactly how John reacts to this event. John eventually makes his way into the tomb. It says that he, he sees all the things in front of him. He sees that there's no dead body. He sees the cloths and the face wrap have been folded and placed neatly on the tomb. And, and there is a point where it says that he believes. John doesn't give much detail. It just says he believes. It seems as if he does in some way connect the dots and has this belief of the most simplest reading of this text is that he says, I may, I, he, he might be alive. I think he's alive. But this is confusing to me because the very next part in the story says, but they did not understand the scriptures that he being Jesus must rise from the dead. Spoiler alert, by the way. It's a very interesting place that he's in where he has some sense of a belief in, in what Jesus has done, but he doesn't have this full picture. He connects some of the dots, and we look at this and we go, and we also notice that in the next verse, they both leave. They don't stick around. 
If you would have had some sort of concrete belief that this was Jesus, then why wouldn't you stop and say, Peter, no, I'm not leaving. I want to see what's going on here. I have, a, I have a thought. I have a hunch. When I think of what's going on with John, he looks in, he connects the dots, and it says he believes, but he doesn't have the full picture. He doesn't have something substantial and concrete in the passage pointing to the scriptures to hold on to and say, this is how I know. He has evidence. He sees the cloth and the face skin, and that seems fairly conclusive, but someone else still could have done that, right? I don't look at this belief as a negative belief, but as an incomplete belief. It's lacking something very necessary, some sort of a very necessary assurance. And because he lacks that, as I'm looking at the text, my thought is that's why he leaves. He doesn't have that thing to hold on to and say, this is how I know what I hope is true. He has a belief that's not negative, but it's incomplete. It's lacking the assurance that God gives us through the scriptures. I want to pause here for a moment because I think I want to mention something about this part of the story. These were men that walked with Jesus, that talked with Jesus, that knew his favorite food, that knew how he liked his, his bread and his fish cooked, that, that knew how he, he slept and, and knew his habits and how he got up in the morning and his routines. They knew this Jesus as a very close friend. And not just that, they heard his teachings. They were some of the first disciples that the Gospels record. They saw his miracles. An overwhelming majority of his miracles they witnessed. They saw and they heard an overwhelming majority of his teachings. They saw and heard his, his, his controversial moments with the religious leaders of the time. They did this ministry with him. They heard him say, I must die, be buried, and raised from the dead three days later. If I hear that, I'm going to listen. I see that, and again, my hindsight is 20-20. My, my prideful self looks and says, I got why. How could you not figure this out? I could see it clear as day. But we carry a bit of that pride into looking back on things, don't we? Say, if I was there, I could have figured it out. The evidence is clear, right? I think I want to challenge that notion. And I want us to recognize the fact that these are Jesus' closest friends. These guys heard teachings from Jesus that are not left recorded for us. Saw miracles that were not left recorded for us. John tells us there's plenty more miracles. We can't write them all down. They saw them. And they couldn't connect the dots. How much should that humble us 2,000 years later and say, do I have this as I should? Do I understand this story as much as I should? Do I, have I, am I connecting the dots the way that I should? It's a necessary question because we have this 
idea or this notion of when we go to God, we almost have this idea of us going up and seeking out God and raising in some sort of level of intelligence or emotion or spirituality or whatever and saying, oh, I figured out God. But this passage challenges that notion, doesn't it? I'll leave you there and we'll continue in the story. Verse 11 pans the camera back to Mary Magdalene. She comes back to the tomb. And she is, as we look at this text, and as I'm imagining it, must be in one of the most lonely places of her life. One of the most tragic places in all the scriptures. In that space where she doesn't know what's going on. What is her conclusion of all of these events? Well, we see here in a moment. It says that she is crying and she's weeping. And we we may have in our mind this sort of soft, kind of curled up in a ball, soft tears. But the words here were, were for public, loud exclamations of mourning, screaming and crying and tears are running. This was not a small and contained thing. Deep grief and loneliness and hurt and despair. And she is left in this space. The disciples are gone. She doesn't know where her Lord is. She's in a very lonely place. And then a few things happen that, again, if I look at, I go, I would have reacted a little bit stronger to this. In the midst of her hurt and her despair and her mourning, she looks into the tomb and sees the scriptures say, to angels. Now, every other time in scripture that I see an angel mentioned, the next thing that is said is that the people who saw them were greatly afraid. Angels are terrifying creatures. They're not little pudgy babies with harps flying around. After the message, look up a, look up an, a, a, a Google image of biblical angels. They're very terrifying-looking creatures. We don't have photographic evidence. That's not what I was saying. It's a drawing, right? right? But she doesn't exclaim fear when she sees them. And they ask her a question, a simple question, kind of an obvious-looking question. Woman, why are you weeping? Her response, for they have taken my Lord. And I don't know where they have put him. Again, I look at that and I go, I, I, that's my mind right there. I see those two angelic beings and I'm like, whoa, hold on. What are you doing? Like, what is this? It's interesting, different people's reactions. And it's interesting the Bible wasn't written for us to go, oh, I get fully how this works. The next thing she says is says that she turns around and she sees a man. Standing. And he looks at her and he asks her the same question the angels asked her. Woman, why are you crying? So one of those, you're reading and that feels like a dead giveaway. It says she mistakes him for a gardener. And she says, sir, please tell me where you have taken the body. We're we're reading this passage, we're looking at this message, and we're like, Mary, open your eyes. 
Like, I get it. This is crazy. But open your eyes. Look for a second. We're on the edge of our seats here as this supposed gardener looks at her and says a simple word. He just says, Mary. And all of a sudden then, it all comes together. She looks. This is not a gardener. This is not a normal man. This is not some stranger. This is a dear friend. This is a dear, wonderful person. This is Jesus, resurrected, risen from the dead. Jesus is alive. She responds with an Aramaic term, Rabboni. means teacher. If I saw, again, if I saw my, a, a guy who claimed to be God dead and rose from the dead, I'm not going to look at him, and my first reply isn't, oh, teacher. It's an odd thing to say, right? Teacher was an honorable, emotional title. It's not a teacher you see once a day in school. It was someone you lived life with. It was someone that guided you. It was someone that helped you in your, some of your worst places in life that instructed you and helped you to grow to become the person that you are and you are so thankful for. Rabboni. There, she connects the dots. It comes together. This is Jesus. He is not dead, for he has risen. A very natural reaction for her is next, where she goes to to cling to him, to hug him, to embrace him, to say, oh my gosh, what is going on? And yet Jesus keeps her at an an arm's length. He says, do not touch me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But instead, go to the other disciples and tell them, what you have seen. We'll get to what's going on there because you're like, Jesus, we can't have a moment to hug? What's going on here? I I think there's an explanation for that, but that will come in a moment. Mary then leaves. She leaves the scene. She she goes to the disciples and she, she shouts triumphantly and says, I have seen the Lord. He is risen. It's okay. I get it. It's a big deal this morning, but you know. There was plenty of coffee offered for you guys. That's all I'm saying. Jesus is risen. And, okay, I wasn't expecting, that one's my bad. That one's my bad. I'm I'm still new to this whole thing. It's weird on this end, right? It's a little weird on this end. Mary becomes the first person to share the resurrected gospel of Jesus with the world. I think that's so beautiful that God decides I, I imagine this, and I sit in God's seat, and I say, if I'm going to share with the world, who, who am I going to share with first? Who's the first person I would say to, hey, by the way, Jesus is alive. Go tell people. Who would I tell? Who would you tell? I feel like I'd tell someone that could get the word out, right? Maybe a, a leader. Maybe the go to the Sanhedrin and say, ha ha, you're wrong. Maybe I'd go to the Romans, who, are the, who was the leading empire in the world, and say, by the way, you killed this guy and he's alive now. But Jesus chooses none of them. He chooses this group of women. 
And that's particularly interesting because, sorry ladies for this one, 2,000 years ago, the opinion of women was not to the same value as the opinion of men. Unfortunately, 2,000 years ago, it took the opinion of two or three women to equate to the opinion of one man. This was unfortunate, but the part of the task of doing history is recognizing some of the most unfortunate parts. But look at how God flies in the face of the culture he's in by saying, I'm going to do the thing that may appear in your context foolish to show my wisdom. Isn't that a beautiful way that God works in our imperfect cultures and existences? What a beautiful thing. Jesus eventually appears and reveals himself to the disciples. Then he eventually goes to doubting Thomas, poor Thomas, that's how we know him. And eventually the book of John comes to an end. And that is our Easter story from John's gospel. And we're following our way through it, and we're like, okay, what's going on here? Why are I, it's good that we're going through this, but why? Why are we taking our time to do this? I want to go back to what I mentioned earlier about Peter and John and, and include Mary into that. These were three different people that had a personal connection with Jesus, and yet none of them were able to understand by themselves. They weren't able to get to a point of believing in God that we look at and we go, yeah, that checks out. I, I want that belief. Peter just didn't believe. Peter didn't connect the dots. John, he seemed to have some sort of belief, but no, nothing to hold on to. At the worst, wishful thinking, and the best, not negative, but incomplete. And Mary, as well, could not connect the dots until Jesus came to her and spoke to her. This is a very important thing to sit on. Because as I mentioned before, we have these, there's this sort of narrative that we feel that we may have been told one way or another growing up in, in a Christian context and say of, of, of seeking out God. I'm going to go find God. That person's looking for God. They're almost there. They just have to keep going and they could find him. And, and once you do, there, there may have been some point where you, you were told you need to accept Jesus into your heart as if to say that I can approve of, a, of the God of the universe who gave everything for me. As if to say that I can look at God and say, yeah, you're good enough for me. We have this idea that we ascend and go to God, whereas the scriptures tell us the opposite. Instead of us ascending and becoming better, God descended and came to us. We don't worship the God that we have to get on our tippy toes to try to reach to, but we worship the God that stoops to us, who comes to us. And says our name and reveals himself to us. And at that point, once God has revealed himself to us, showed us that he is risen from the dead, showed us our need for him as our Savior, at that point, our response can be to surrender our lives to him. We're not accepting Jesus into our heart. We're, we're surrendering our lives to the God who gave everything for us. This is the personal part of the gospel message, and one that I wish to emphatically mention. We, we unfortunately think highly of ourselves, don't we, at times? I don't think it's all bad, you know. 
But sometimes in this place, we think a little more highly than we should. I've got this figured out. I know enough of God. I interacted with God in life, and that's, that's good enough. I've made that decision at some points in life, and, and I, I'm good. But I will challenge that here. And again, I will appeal back to our forgetfulness. We're very forgetful. We need help with this one. In fact, if you want to hear one thing today, and if I wish that you hear one thing today and forget the rest, that one thing is this. It is this a wonderful truth. But it's a humbling one. It is that Jesus is alive. And with his help, we can believe it. That and with his help is so important. You and I cannot find God. We cannot go on this sort of mental or emotional or spiritual journey and come to the finish line and say, okay, now I'm here. That's not how God works. We don't get better. We don't ascend to some place, but God descends to us. The Bible tells us very clearly that we are dead in our trespasses and our sins. The sons and daughters of disobedience, children of wrath, and liable to judgment because of our grave and offense towards God, that being our sin. And that is the place that we are left in. That's our condition. And the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. We have that inside of each and every one of us. It is a place that we are lost. It is a place that we, we wish for something better. We may desire something better. We may try to, to mold our lives into what we think could look better, whether that be with family or jobs or finances or achievements. And yet none of those can remove a crime we already committed against a holy and good God. And God noticing this, seeing our destitute place, in the fullness of time, when he deemed best, came to this earth, completely man, completely God, and Jesus Christ, lived a perfect life, died a perfect death for us imperfect sinners. There is no way that we ascend. We are dead in our sins. But praise be to God that we have a gospel that we can hold on to. A gospel that, that, that tells us that God reveals himself to us and that not even that, but shows us before the foundations of the world. Reveals himself to us. Shows us our need for him as our savior. Shows us that we are dead. That we are fallen. That there is nothing that we can do without him. He doesn't come to us and say, you're doing okay, let me make your life a little bit better. He says, no. You need me. Surrender your life to me. Give me your life. Let me work in your life according to my plan, God's plan. The gospel isn't one of me becoming better. It's one of me recognizing how bad I am. Believe in the gospel message. Ask yourself this question. Am I taking this story seriously enough? Have I truly surrendered my life to God? Have I given God my everything? Has he my hope alone? Is he alone my joy, my peace? If everything in this world is gone, and he is it, is that enough for me? 
Do I believe that Jesus is Lord? Have I confessed that he has risen from the dead to pay for my sins and to show his authority over death and hell? That is the personal gospel. We'll talk in greater detail about the gospel next week. I'm excited for that series. New series next week, by the way. That's the first thing I want us to mention. One of the second things, and this might be more pointed at some of you who, who have made that decision, who have been, who you could say that, yes, God has revealed himself to me. I have surrendered my life to him. He is all that I have, and I am working on making sure that he is all that I need. My question for you is, are you taking this story seriously enough? Are you recognizing the fact that if Jesus rose from the dead, everything is changed? One of the songs was, and on that day, the world was changed. The lamb was slain. I didn't get the lyrics fully right there. Everything is changed if Jesus rose from the dead. And we need to live different as people who have surrendered our lives to him. We need to look at the commandments that Jesus gave us and say, are we doing this? Are we taking this seriously enough? Listen to some of the commands. Many of these you've heard. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourselves. What are some of those commandments? We hear that one. We go, that sounds like a pretty good one. I think I might be able to do that. And then we look at other ones. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. If he slaps you on the right cheek, give him also your other. If he takes your cloak, give him also your robe. If he makes you walk a mile, walk an extra one. Those are harder. But those are the ways that we as Christians are supposed to live in this world. Are you demonstrating those commands in your life? Are we looking different as believers? Are we allowing the pressures of this world and the acceptances of our culture to change us to reflect more of our culture than our God? Because our culture does not reflect love your enemy. Do you? If you're a Christian, the scriptures say I can challenge you on this, and you can challenge me as well. That's the second piece. The third piece is this. And here we get back to the passage. And we see this confusing place where, where Mary wishes to cling to Jesus. And he says, no, hold on. Hold on a moment. I find that interesting. That Jesus' urgency at that point was to share this truth. Share what Mary has seen with her brothers and her sisters. And he says, no, don't cling to me. I have not ascended to my Father, but go. Go tell others. This is something that you can take to the bank. God never gives us anything to keep to ourselves. God never gives us anything to keep to ourselves. From something such as the gospel message to our homes, our finances, our, our, our lives. Everything that God gives us is a gift that we do not deserve. And all of those things are meant to be given towards somebody else. To reflect the all-giving, sacrificial love that God had given to us. 
And so the challenge in this point is, as Jesus is saying, that something that's important for Mary to do in this place is to go, share what you've seen. This is the hope of the world, the resurrection of Jesus. There is urgency with this message. Do you have an urgency to take this message and to give it and to share it with others in your context, your friends and your family and your coworkers and your neighbors and people you don't like? Do you have that urgency? If we believe that we have the key to all of life's problems, the, the meaning in a meaningless world, the purpose in a purposeless world, the joy in a joyless world, the peace in a violent world. If we believe we have all those things, we need to share that with those around us. You need to share that with those around you. God has given you, if you surrendered your life to him, the ultimate answer of life's greatest questions. Why should we not share it? Why can we come up with excuses such as it's uncomfortable? In all of this, what's beautiful in all of this is that we have, we have a story, not just a story, a historical event that gives us hope, that gives us peace, and that is the resurrection of our Lord. Every Christian's being must rest completely on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. This is not something we can forget about. This is not something that we can say, I've heard that a million times, I don't need to hear it again. This is not something that we can take lightly. This is our life. This is our identity. This is our hope. The resurrection of Jesus. And we are forgetful people bringing us back to the beginning of our message, our time here. We are forgetful people. And we're going to continue to be forgetful people. I know I am, and I apologize. But this is something we cannot forget. This is something that demands our fullest attention, our fullest concentration, our fullest commitment. Because this God is so good that he rescued us. Completely undeserving peoples destined for judgment. And one day, because this is true and God never changes, he will return again. And at that place, at that time, evil itself will be destroyed. Peace manifest will reign supreme. War will be a memory. Conflicts will not exist anymore. Because Jesus will be on earth. The new heavens, the new earth will come together. God will find his dwelling place with man. That is our hope. Hold to that hope.